Hey guys, welcome to Salt City. My name's Drew. Great to have you here this morning. We are going to jump back into the Gospel of Mark today. So we took a two-week break. We looked at John chapter 1 and we looked at John chapter 15. But our normal rhythm at Salt City is just to take a book of the Bible and we are not very creative, so we just title it with the name of the book, like Mark, and then we just teach through that book verse by verse. And that's fundamentally because we believe that the best way to hear God speak is simply to read his word out loud and to hear what he has to say to us. And so that's what we're going to do once again this morning. And so we find ourselves at about the halfway point in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 8. And we are looking at verses 1 through 21. And so I'm going to read that chunk. So, you know, people say that your attention spans like three seconds today. I'm going to need a little bit longer than that. So 21 verses, we can do this. Here we go. Mark chapter 8, 1 through 21. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanintha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? So you might be thinking as I'm reading that text, this sounds really familiar. Because just a few chapters earlier in the Gospel of Mark, instead of feeding 4,000 people, Jesus fed 5,000 people. And so Jesus essentially does the same thing again. But I don't know about you, but I relate to the disciples. The disciples are like really slow to understand exactly what Jesus 
is doing. And I think in the disciples, we can see sort of the spirit of our age when it comes to the way that we view the miraculous. We're very skeptical of miracles. And the way that it's been described before that made a lot of sense to me is it's sort of like there's this fog that's all around us. And we're so used to living in this fog that we've just come to accept it as the way that things are. I don't know if you've ever driven in just dense fog before, but as you're driving in it, maybe you go down in a valley or something like that, it seems to be that the fog is all that there is. There might be a beautiful mountain to your left or a beautiful ocean to your right. It doesn't matter what's around you. All you're able to see is the fog and it sort of starts to make you feel uncomfortable. And I think that this fog that we experience is sort of the spirit of our age which says what you see is all that there is. And because what you see is all that there is, there's this underlying assumption. It's not always spoken out loud, but there's this underlying assumption that miraculous things cannot happen. And so we see in the disciples sort of this skepticism of our age, but we also in the story see in the Pharisees sort of this entitlement mentality of our age as well. The disciples don't even really realize what just happened, it seems. And the Pharisees are like, we want more. And we can have one of those two attitudes because this fog exists all around us. We actually, I think, underneath it all, we feel desperate for God in our lives. We think, man, I just need him to show up and do something miraculous. But because of this naturalism our day, that feels impossible. And so we're going to discuss a little bit about miracles today. And here's kind of the big idea that's going to lay over what we say. It's that miracles teach us that Jesus is trustworthy. Okay, so as we look at this miracle and kind of examine it, we're going to see that it teaches us that Jesus is a trustworthy person. We can trust him to do miracles as he pleases and in his timing. So we're going to look at the legitimacy of miracles, the purpose of miracles, and the crisis of miracles. So the legitimacy, the purpose, and the crisis. So first of all, let's look at the legitimacy of miracles. And so at this point, we're kind of preparing ourselves to look at this text a little bit. I want to, first and foremost, sort of remove that fog So like I said, I think the initial question that we have as modern Western people is we look at this text and we immediately have this skepticism. And we're like, I don't really think that this could happen. And maybe as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark and we've we've come across miracle story after miracle story after miracle story, maybe the more we read about the miracles of Jesus the more sort of unsettled and skeptical you're becoming. And the reason for that is because you feel like, how are all of these people around me believing this stuff? And it's so hard for me to accept it. And so maybe you feel sort of a low-level guilt about being skeptical. And so the question becomes, how can we believe this? And I think the main argument 
in our ears when we think, how could these things have really happened is something like this. Miracles cannot happen because they contradict the laws of nature. Okay, so we believe that miracles cannot happen, this is generally speaking as a society, because they contradict the laws of nature. And so in its basic form, it would be like, what goes up must come down. So there's this law of gravity. And we know from our experience that the law of gravity cannot be contradicted. You can't float and you can't fly. And that makes sense to us. Like when we see that in sound bites on CNN or Fox News or whatever, we're like, okay, yeah, that makes sense to me. And so how can I possibly argue against that? And maybe we don't take time to think about it. And so we sort of walk away. And then we come to a miracle story like this and we kind of apply the same logic subconsciously, right? So we read about Jesus taking these loaves and these fish and multiplying it. And we're like, yeah, this doesn't work. You can't take just a few loaves and a few fish and feed thousands of people. The last time I checked, a few loaves and a few fish only feed a few people. And so we have this sort of implicit bias that these things cannot happen. And it sort of makes sense to us in its simple form. So how do we deal with that? I think there's a little bit of a loophole in this argument, okay, as we engage it. And it's in this word, laws. Miracles cannot contradict the laws of nature, is how the argument goes. I think the problem with the argument is in the word laws. Okay, so this morning, let me give you an example. I drove in to Graduate Hotel on I-35. And I drive in on I-35 every day to come to church. And... I'm driving along and I look on the side of the road and the speed limit says 55 miles per hour. I think, okay, 55 miles per hour, that makes sense. I don't really think about this that often, but I thought about it for this. And as you think about it, you think, well, how did the speed limit become 55 miles per hour? How did that get written into law? Well, I imagine like 30 years ago or something like that, somebody decided that that would be the safest possible speed limit on that road. And so there was like a governing body of some kind that decided that the speed limit on I-35 would be 55 miles per hour. And so here's what, what I would not do if next week I was driving on I-35 going north and I looked over there and it said 65 miles per hour. I would not say the 65 mile per hour speed limit contradicts the 55 mile per hour speed limit. What I would say is that that same governing body who decided that the speed limit would be 55 miles per hour and was enforcing that speed limit for a while also decided that the speed limit would be 65 miles per hour. So here's what I'm saying. We believe, when we talk about the word law, we implicitly believe that there is a lawgiver. And if there is a lawgiver, then that person also has the responsibility to enforce that law and has the ability to change it. That's the way that we normally use the word law. A law has a lawgiver, 
the law can be suspended and it can also be changed. Okay, so you notice what's being done in this argument that we're looking at. Miracles cannot contradict the laws of nature. But people who make that argument don't believe in a lawgiver, a law enforcer, or in somebody who can change that law. They believe that there is no lawgiver, that we live in a strictly material universe. But laws, don't you see, cannot keep themselves. There has to be somebody who's enforcing them. So my question with that argument is, who is enforcing the laws of nature? I think it would be better for those with a materialistic view of the universe to use the phrase observations we've made about the universe. As Christians, I think we can use this phrase laws of nature, but you see, once you open up the possibility that there are laws of nature, you have to assume that there is a lawgiver in nature. And if there is a lawgiver of nature, then he has the right to suspend or change those laws whenever he pleases. So here's what we're saying in this text, in the context of the Gospel of Mark. This is why we believe that this miracle did happen and all the miracles in the Gospel of Mark happened. Because Jesus showed up on the scene in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, and he said, repent and believe the good news. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, the assumption of the entire gospel of Mark is that Jesus himself is the lawgiver, the law enforcer, and the one with exclusive rights to change or suspend the law whenever he pleases. He's God. He can do what he wants, including violate his own laws of nature. So I hope that that helps you just think through sort of where we're coming from. I I just want to show you my cards. That's kind of our presupposition as we come into this text and help you think through what our culture would say in response to this text. Okay, secondly, since we sort of established why we believe miracles do happen, let's kind of look within the Gospel of Mark at the purpose of miracles from this text. So again, Mark 8, verse 2, Jesus said this, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Okay, so two things I want you to notice about this text is that there are needy people. In other words, another place in the, in the passage, it says that the people were about to faint on the way. And we sort of see this as a pattern whenever Jesus does miraculous things throughout the Gospel of Mark. You will find a needy person, somebody who has leprosy or somebody whose daughter has just died or disciples that are screaming like little girls on a boat because they're terrified of a storm. There's always a human need that needs to be met. And then you have Jesus, and he responds to that human need with a feeling, just a gut-level reaction of compassion. So those are two aspects of a miracle. But 
with us, if we look at the human needs around us, we may have compassion, but the main issue that we have is we don't have the power to actually address the issue. Jesus has the power to address the issue. So when you get compassion, a human need, and power, a person who is able to suspend or change his laws of nature, you get the possibility of these biblical miracles. So let me just give you sort of my quick definition of, as I've been studying through the Gospel of Mark of a miracle. It's this. It's when Jesus temporarily suspends his laws of nature to reveal his compassion and authority in meeting diverse human needs. Now, notice I said his laws of nature and his compassion and authority. The center of the miraculous work of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Mark and throughout the entire Bible is that Jesus aims to display his glory. He is an amazing person, that he is in a category by himself. But he doesn't do that simply so that we'll look at him and praise him like he's some sort of egomaniac. But he does that because when Jesus reveals his glory, what is revealed is both his compassion and his authority. And when his compassion and authority are revealed to human beings, people's needs get met. In other words, the purpose of miracles is to help us trust that Jesus is good. It's to show us his trustworthiness. It's to show us that that is the kind of God that he is. He's not just all-powerful, up in the sky, hanging out alone, sort of looking down at the world and saying, good luck figuring this out. But he's also not just here with us and kind of in our junk with us, but unable to do anything about it. He is both. He is here with us, and he is also far above us. And so we know that he cares about us as we look at these miracles, but we also know that he's able to do something about it. Okay, let me just take this down to the street level with you. I've never been able to do a miracle. I'm sorry if, if you were hoping that I was going to say, you know, I've got these special powers and the special connection to God where I can kind of do miracles whenever I want sort of thing. But, but that's not true. But let me, let me explain to you just sort of with an everyday example what this is, looks like, okay? So I can't do miracles, but I can suspend laws and meet needs, okay? Let me show you that, okay? My kids love McDonald's, all right? They, they absolutely love McDonald's. But the normal way that we operate in my family is we eat at home, right? When you have five kids, that's a big deal to get them out of the house and, and go eat and all that. And so the normal everyday rhythms that we go through in life is we've got the crock pot, right? And you, you know, my wife puts the meal in. It's, it's like a wonderful invention, right? You put the meal in the crock pot in the morning, you wait the entire day, and then voila, it's done at night. We sit the kids down, we give them all their food, and it's kind of like camp. 
That's the way we operate. Like, it's like, you've got five minutes to eat. If you don't like it, it doesn't really matter because this is what we're having, right? And then you get your PJs on and then brush teeth and it's all kind of assembly line driven around my house. And, um, and so when I sort of suspend our normal way of doing things, and, you know, usually it's like Melissa and I are super overwhelmed. It's like, kids, get in the van. We're going to McDonald's. The kids are like, no way, McDonald's. Like, they think McDonald's is absolutely amazing. I kind of judge people who went to McDonald's before I had kids. Now, I, like, every time I see the golden arches, like, I just, my heart swells with joy. And so, we, we go to McDonald's, right? And, and when we leave McDonald's, like, they are talking about it with each other and with me for days. It's like, Dad, thank you so much that you took us to, that was amazing. Maybe we could go to McDonald's again. To them, it's like a miracle, right? Because they don't have the same power that I have to sort of suspend the ways that we normally do things and kind of go out of our way to do something special. And in a way, that's what a miracle is at its simplest form. It's Jesus being our big brother who loves us and having power that we don't have doing for us what we could never do for ourselves, for our enjoyment, for his glory, but it also just meets this fundamental need we have. And in the story that we are looking at today, it's this need for food. Jesus is a gracious, good God. My encouragement to you is that Jesus is, every day of your life, maybe not in miraculous ways, but he is meeting your needs. He loves you. He cares about you. He's providing your food. He's providing your shelter. He's giving you what you need, spiritually speaking. We talked about Jesus being the true vine last week. He is the source of life, the one to whom we can turn and will hear us and will answer us. So the purpose of The miracles is to simply show us that, that Jesus is trustworthy. He is the place we can look to get our needs met. So the question I have is, okay, we're reading through the Gospel of Mark. We've gotten to another miracle story. And I said at the beginning, we sort of feel sometimes like we live in this fog, meaning we don't feel like we see these miracles happening a lot. And so the question is, as we read through these miracles, how should we respond to them? What should our heart's reaction be? Because I'm sort of arguing that these miracles create a crisis. So we're going to look thirdly at the crisis of miracles. They kind of put this fork in the road for us. When we actually begin to believe that Jesus can do miracles, and we see that it's to show us that he's trustworthy and that he loves us, then how do we respond to them? And we see a couple different reactions in the text. First, let's look at the reaction of the disciples. So Mark 8, 14 through 16. This is sort of the disciples' reaction to this miracle of Jesus taking the loaves and the fish and feeding thousands of people. It says, now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one 
loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Okay, so here's the scene. The disciples leave the feeding of the 4,000 and they're on a boat. Seems like they're on a boat a lot in the Gospel of Mark. And they're, they're cruising along and one of them forgot to bring the bread. Where's the bread? Now, this is a hilarious situation, right? Because they have the bread maker in the boat. Jesus is with them. And they're getting in this argument with each other like, you forgot the bread? You idiot. Why did you forget the bread? And they're focused on their need for food. And Jesus response is to talk about, first of all, the leaven of the Pharisees, which we'll see later. The leaven of the Pharisees, there's just this pride and this hypocrisy and the sense of entitlement that the Pharisees have. So Jesus is like, don't be entitled to these miraculous signs. So Jesus is saying to them. And they're just thinking about themselves. And what this shows us is that we can often have this attitude of indifference toward the miraculous. Sort of be like, you know what? Whatever. I think the more familiar we get with the Bible, the more that we can become this way. You sort of just read through these stories and you're like, well, yeah, Jesus calmed the storm and Jesus healed people and Jesus walked on water. La ti da ti da. What time's the football game this afternoon? And we can become super indifferent. And if we don't watch out, our hearts begin to drift into spiritual apathy. We're at the bottom. We really don't believe that Jesus wants to do anything significant in our day. This faithlessness starts to creep in. And we sort of start to act like on the outside, we believe Jesus is amazing, that he can do amazing things, and that he wants to change this generation. But if we're honest with ourselves, we're just kind of like, where is he? Can he really do these things? And we find in ourselves this indifference to Jesus, even in the face of him doing miraculous things. Isn't that telling? that the disciples have just witnessed a massive miracle and their reaction is, eh, who brought the bread? Where's that at? I'm kind of hungry. But then we see on the opposite end of the spectrum, the reaction of the Pharisees. Mark 8, verses 11 through 12. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him. Seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now, this reaction is equally ridiculous. The disciples are totally indifferent. The Pharisees actually begin to demand Jesus to show them another sign. So again, Jesus has just done this amazing miracle. The Pharisees come to him and they're like, we want you to do another one right now. 
And we can see this spirit also begin to creep into us. Where our requests in our relationship with God actually begin to turn into demands. And this especially is true the more desperate that we become. If you've got a disease or someone in your family is really struggling or you're really struggling with something personally and you start to feel desperate for Jesus to intervene and do a miracle, you can begin to come to him and start to demand that he do for you what you want him to do for you. You start to essentially say to Jesus, get off your agenda, get onto my agenda or else and do it right now because I'm tired of living in this place. And there can be this bitterness that begins to come into our relationship with Jesus. This anger that just underlies our entire relationship with him. Again, we can kind of keep the religious facade going, but that can still be there all along. And Jesus actually calls that response to his miracle working power evil. He says that it's an evil generation that seeks after a sign. In other words, he's saying, I'm the lawgiver. I'm the judge of when it is right and good to do miracles. You're not. It's evil to try to put ourselves in the place of God. But then Jesus says something actually pretty amazing if you read into the text a little bit. At the end of this, he says kind of this interesting phrase. He says, truly I say to you, um, no sign will be given to this generation. This is why I say this is an interesting phrase. This was sort of a common phrase that was used back in the day. And this is what Jesus is literally saying to the Pharisees. He is literally saying, May God do so and more to me if a sign is ever given to this generation. See, what Jesus actually says to the Pharisees is, may I be cursed if I ever give a sign to this generation. He's calling down a curse on himself, which is so curious, isn't it? Why would he respond that way? What is behind his statement? Why is it such an evil thing to seek after a sign that Jesus is saying, may I be cursed if I give you a sign? You know what I actually think Jesus is doing? He's pointing us forward to what's about to happen in the gospel of Mark. This is part of the greater story of what the gospel of Mark is all about. What Jesus is saying implicitly in this text, he will do explicitly later in the text. He is saying, I will be cursed as the ultimate miracle, as the ultimate sign 
to prove my trustworthiness to you. You want a sign? I'll give you the cross. So earlier, let me just recap here. We defined miracle in this way. When Jesus temporarily suspends his laws of nature to reveal his compassion and authority in meeting diverse human needs. Here's what I'm saying when I'm saying that the cross is the ultimate miracle. Let me define what Jesus did on the cross for you. The cross was when Jesus temporarily died against his most fundamental law of nature to reveal his compassion and authority in meeting the greatest human need. You see, on the cross, what Jesus did is he did the impossible. He suspended the law that is written into nature which says, God cannot die. God upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is in a category by himself. He exists outside of time. The most fundamental thing about God is that God cannot die. And out of his deep compassion for us, in seeing us in our greatest human need, which was that we are all marked and stained by sin. We don't just do sin. We are sinners at the deepest level of our hearts. What comes out of us on a daily basis is what is actually true of us. And that is that we hate God and we hate other people. And Jesus sees our need to be reconciled to God. And he does the most miraculous thing ever. He becomes human so that he can die. Isn't that amazing? Jesus died for you on the cross to show you once and for all that he is the most trustworthy person in the universe. See, you don't need Jesus to do another miracle for you so that you can trust him. You don't need to seek for him to do another sign. You don't need for him to take away your cancer or help you with your misbehaving kids. You look to the cross. That is the place where Jesus has definitively and once and for all proven to us that we can trust him. We can trust him. He's broken in to this world and done what is absolutely impossible. Here's how Romans 8 verse 32 states this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we can trust God for the rest of our days on this earth. So here's my encouragement to you. No matter what you are going through, no matter what is happening in your life, no matter the trials, the temptations that you have going on, I'd ask you, let go of your demands. 
Let go of your sense of entitlement. Give up your indifference and look to Jesus with eyes of faith. Because the hands that were wounded to save you can be trusted for their love. And the hands that created the universe can be trusted for their power. We can walk in faith in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you show us over and over again in the Gospel of Mark who you are, that you are a God of deep compassion and incredible power, and that you love people. It's the best news in the entire world. And yet all of our hearts often drift either into the sense of entitlement or the sense of indifference. And we forget who you are, which is why we need to come to church, which is why I need, need to hear from your word, which is why we need to be in connection groups. We need each other. But would you help us, God, to walk in faith this week, to let go of the, the sin that so easily entangles us and to look at you as the author and perfecter of our faith. And would you help us this week? We trust you, Jesus. Help us to trust you more.